would you like Hitler? I mean, and he said he wasn't that bad of a guy. And I never forgot that. We're not um, just going to sit behind keyboards anymore and talk about uh, our, our beliefs or talk about um, the fact that we need to train and we need to be prepared, that we're actually doing it now um, and actually getting ready for any scenario. They have a right to be here. They have no right to, however, cause trouble and hurt people and intimidate people. They have no right to do that. I can't believe that's legal, to let my son be in a pressure cooker situation like that with a loaded weapon. This is Season 2 of Sounds Like Hate, a podcast series from the Southern Poverty Law Center. I'm Geraldine Moriba. And I'm Jamila Paxima. We're examining where we come from, the history we accept as truth, and how sometimes our views influence the people we love the most towards violent extremist beliefs. Last season, in our three-part story, Baseless, we introduced you to the accelerationist neo-Nazi group called The Base. We reported on their violent plots and schemes. We shared excerpts from 83 hours of secret audio recordings made inside The Base's vetting room between the leader of this group and more than 100 potential new members. These recordings cover a two-year period starting November 2018. If you look at the economy and this whole fiat currency, even if it doesn't collapse, it's just going to degenerate more and more until even the military starts to revolt. That's why I'd say just prepare for the fall. The conversations reveal how the base was organizing members into small terror cells across the United States. This included converting a farm in Michigan into a whites-only compound where men would practice paramilitary training and get prepared for the collapse of America. On one of those secret recordings was a prospective member from Michigan, a 17-year-old who called himself Eric. Uh, well, I'm uh, quarter Slavic and then mostly Anglo and German. But 55% of the recruits on these secret recordings were 21 and under. Eric stood out for his eagerness to open his family farm in Bad Axe, Michigan to other base members. I mean, I know you guys have a really good vetting situation going. So, you know, anybody that needs anything, they got a safe house to go to. Anybody has a place to come. Part four of Baseless is about this teenage recruit and members of the base who moved in with him. It's also about his family's attempts to intervene before it was too late. A warning to our listeners, this episode contains offensive and violent content One of the first things we learned after releasing the last episode of Baseless is Eric's real name. It's Tristan Webb. He is 18 now, 
This is our first phone conversation. Hi, how's it going? This is Tristan. Hey, Tristan. Thank you for calling. How are you doing today? Yeah. I'm doing all right. Have you had a chance to hear our podcast at all? Yeah, I heard um, the one that I was in. What were some of the things that have led you to National Socialism or white separatism? I was researching into politics in general since a really young age um, because of the fact my dad was more of a uh, conspiracy theorist kind of guy. So I didn't trust the government at all or democracy. And I uh, kind of came to see that um, we needed something radical to change. If they're lying about all these other things, then they're probably lying about Hitler and stuff. Tristan's anti-Semitic and distorted beliefs frightened his grandmother. She could see her grandson heading down the path of radicalization. It just started to feel like Tristan was, you know, having some trouble. Carol Teagarden is Tristan's paternal grandmother. She was a columnist with the Detroit Free Press, and later she became a substitute teacher. He had an early hardship with that stuff. After Tristan's parents divorced, she says one of his father's girlfriends hurt him as a five-year-old. They got into a tangle. She grabbed his arm and and, uh, broke it, basically. That was really bad. And Eric was really upset. And Eric never saw, you know, he, he didn't see the woman after that. But there was a residue of that. There was all kinds of things that happened and some other stuff that happened that I'd rather not talk about. She says Tristan was also exposed to his mother's drinking. She's had some problems over the years, but I told her I don't judge her on anything, any of all the stuff that goes on. I have judged her about the alcohol, and I told her that, you know. And she said it is what it is, so either you can get sober or you don't. I was lucky one. I was able to, you know, stop. But I, lucky I did because I had kidney disease. At the age of eight, Tristan moved with his mother to Lake City, Michigan. This move was the hardest. Teagarden says he was a new kid in a new town when he became suicidal. He went to therapy reluctantly. His grandmother remembers this was the beginning of his interest in Hitler. She says he watched historical videos about him with a close relative. When, after a detailed review of Nazi achievements, Hitler cries, my life's fight has not been in vain. I would go over there and they would have, he would have videos about Hitler, and Tristan would sit and watch him with him. Well, you know, I just looked at it and I went, how could you like Hitler? I mean, and he said he wasn't that bad of a guy. I didn't connect it to Tristan, that I didn't think anything, I didn't think he, I didn't think anything at the time, I should have. Tristan's mother declined speaking with us, but in the secret recordings of the base's recruiting calls, Tristan explained that many of his mother's side of the family shared his white supremacist views, views which deepened when Tristan met a friend online, a teenage girl living in Australia. He fell for this girl, and his whole life began to revolve around 
phone calls, which you almost have to do because he's talking to her when it's three o'clock, you know, our time. And so school was suffering, so he wanted to do homeschooling. Soon, Tristan said he wanted to visit her. Trying to be supportive, his grandmother took him on the first of two trips across the world. She says she was shocked when Tristan's new girlfriend also turned out to be a white supremacist. They dated for about two years. My grandson, he doesn't call himself a white supremacist. Um, He calls himself, I think the last thing I heard was a nationalist, which is um, pretty, it's racist. And I was stunned when it first appeared. I thought, boy, you know, our family wasn't like that. He developed an obsession with black metal music and started following a Norwegian artist named Varg Vikernes, a neo-Nazi and a convicted murderer who served time for arson and for burning down a church and fatally stabbing a musician. It was a pretty much white supremacist. He had burned down some churches and he had actually murdered somebody from another dark metal band and he went to jail and he came out. And I thought, oh boy, this is bad. By the time he was in Lake City High School, Tristan openly shared his Nazi beliefs and it got him kicked out of school. The Lake City School was shut down because he was passing out whatever he had done and um, he got suspended. We were able to obtain a copy of the propaganda dated May 15, 2018 from the Misaki County Sheriff's Office. The pamphlets professed false and disparaging accusations about other races as well as keeping the white race pure. There was also a letter Tristan signed and distributed asking students to fundraise and join him in the National Socialist Movement. That's when I saw the material start to happen, like Holocaust signs. And he had framed pictures of Hitler and Hitler's henchmen. And I would walk in there and i go, wow, Tristan, this is um, pretty rough. Then he, he began to, he cut his hair short, and then he began to do like the skinhead look. And he was getting a lot of this stuff online. He's always been an outsider, and then he searched for identity. Eric Webb is Tristan's father. Tristan was using his father's name as an alias to join the base. This is the real Eric. She's snoring. He was holding his miniature pet Yorkie during our interview. He says he didn't know about the pamphlets. How do I? I never... That's the first time I've ever heard of that. There were many things he didn't know about his son. I have swastika tattoos on my hand and uh, tattoos on my face. You didn't know that, did you? And now I have a tattoo on my face. Oh. Even the dog is groaning about it. Teagarden says Tristan lived with his father at different points. He heard Eric's conspiracy theories about the Illuminati, prepper ideology, and anti-government views. Teagarden also says 
Webb later became a QAnon believer. Q is trying to tell people, according to him, many in our government are actively worshiping Satan. This is a conspiracy theory about a secret faction of Democrats who were Satan-worshipping pedophiles running a global child sex trafficking plot against former President Trump. Eric disagrees with his mother's characterization of his beliefs and says he's not the source of Tristan's radicalization. A lot of people want to blame, they want to look for a source. In my view of the world, a lot of people go, well, where do you learn this kind of stuff from? Well, he didn't learn it from me. Wouldn't have learned it from my mom or my dad. Do you think he had extremist views when you were young? No, no, never. Are you a national socialist? No. Have you ever denied the Holocaust? No. Do you idolize Hitler? No. Tristan says his parents and school counselors tried to intervene. They tried to get therapists to talk to me. They tried to suspend me. They tried to do whatever they could to stop, you know, me, de-radicalize me and everything. And it just didn't work. It just made me uh, more secure in what I was doing. And it worked. I mean, I got a group of people around and got people to wake up. By the time he was in high school, Tristan says he identified as a National Socialist. This excerpt is from his interview with The Base. There was an assembly going on. I, it was giving a speech, and then there was uh, light coming in from the window behind me. They called me Jesus Hitler the rest of the year. In your vetting call, you talked about students calling you Jesus Hitler? Yeah, that was... Um... Just because I, I would give speeches and stuff, and I was really passionate about the movement. Um, and I would try and convert people over and give people pamphlets. And I got Here's another story his father hadn't heard. Jesus, Hitler, I've never heard it, but that just sounds, to me, in my beliefs, it's like, okay, Jesus, and who's the anti-Jesus? Oh, I'm Hitler. It, it just tells me on my own personal level that he's battling good and evil in himself. Eric Webb is an optometrist, a divorced father of two. He says he's a devout Christian. He also saw his son struggle with depression and then witnessed him going down a path of extremism. Webb says he tried to intervene more than once. I called CPS and I called the school counselor when I first saw the swastika stuff. And they did nothing. I talked to a lawyer about getting custody of my son. Nothing. If, if CPS and the school counselor aren't going to back you, you're not going to win custody. So Webb says he never worried about Tristan being violent. I didn't worry about him being a killer. He doesn't have it in him to kill. Um, but I worried about him being put in that situation where he would shoot back. In high school, the sheriff's office and federal investigators were called. There was a concern Tristan might be a school shooter. They searched his car for guns and found nothing. Tristan dismissed the suspicion. I was a metalhead and, you know, wore leather jackets and stuff, you know, and then I was, you know, also, you know, a Nazi. So people just assume, you know, you're going to shoot up a school because of that. But in America, there is reason for concern. 2018 was the most deadly year on record with 24 active school shooting incidents. 114 people were killed or injured, more than any other year. 
In the secret recordings we obtained of the base's recruiting calls, Tristan boasted he'd had more than one visit from the feds. I open the door and there's like 11 feds, ATF agents, guys in suits. I mean, it was crazy. And then uh, I sat down, talked to them and the ATF agents went in my room and uh, they have all my serial numbers and my guns and shit. And they found this silencer I was trying to make uh, in the garage. These visits appear to be a source of pride to Tristan. It seems they're watching you. Uh, yeah, they pretty much have been since I was about 15. So, How many times have they met with you? Uh, well, okay. First time I was in high school, and that was because they somebody called the FBI on me saying I was going to shoot up the school. And then they came and met with me, and then um, the raid uh, in September of 2019. And that was um, uh, because of my grandma calling the state police, and then they called CPS, and then CPS called the FBI. And then... Um, so along the way, is there anything that could have been supportive to you or all this effort to try to talk to you was futile? Oh, yeah. No, it didn't work at all. I think um, no one wants to hear, you know, oh, you're wrong. You know, you need to stop this. Uh, oh, you know, you're, um, you know, you're evil. You're right. Because it just makes you more sure in yourself. Tristan says he founded a group called Aryan Resistance. I, I think that um, the Jews, um, they are just a uh, parasitical race. And I, I mean, I don't believe the Holocaust happened. I wish it did happen. So how do you explain the six million people who died in the Holocaust? The gas chambers and a lot of the six million number that's been thrown around is exaggerated. Of course, they were put into the camps. The Holocaust is... Um, greatly exaggerated for profit. There are probably hundreds of millions of people who disagree with you. It's one of the worst atrocities that ever happened in this world. Um, at the same time, you know, a few minutes ago, you're telling me no, no race should overpower another race. And while Tristan's extremist views helped him gain membership into the base, none of his racist Holocaust-denying, genocidal rantings are based on truth. All right, and welcome to episode 41 of I Don't Speak German, the podcast that talks about things that terrible people do, say, and believe. Daniel Harper is a podcast host. He uses a mix of humor and information to explain the pathways to extremism. Not long after Harper launched his series in early 2019, he was doxxed. In Harper's case, a dossier was circulated online with personal details about him. It included an address in Michigan. The dossier was, you know, it had, my, my name is Daniel Harper, so it would have kind of raw information taken from a data dredge, you know, on, on some level. Which is when the harassment started. There were uh, some um, 
drive-bys of the house posted in uh, various telegram channels, which we again colloquially call terrorgram. That, that's when it turned from uh, mockery um, to something that was much darker. One video focused on a house with an SUV parked in the driveway. Neo-Nazis shared it on YouTube, along with the license plate number, and threats like, nice place you got there. They would drive a car and film going past this particular address. And then um, they would turn on like their GPS that indicated, yes, we are at this particular address. But it turned out that they had the wrong house, that there had previously been another person named Daniel Harper who had lived in that house. But, but not you, Daniel Harper. But not me. So a different family, a completely unrelated family, was being harassed. A completely unrelated family. And my immediate response was, of course, to notify um, authorities and to, and to get the word out through every um, vessel I had to make sure that um, this family was aware of um, the, the possible threat. In September 2019, the FBI picked up U.S. Army soldier Jarrett William Smith. He was arrested for distributing information about making weapons of mass destruction, a napalm bomb, and crossing a state line to plan an attack on the misidentified home of Daniel Harper, the podcaster. There was one message that said, I'm not saying do anything illegal. but I'm saying it would be a real shame if all he has went up in literal flames. That is a, a provoking, deliberate message to suggest what they believe to be your home should be burned down. Uh, absolutely. And um, that quote comes immediately after a, uh, a set of instructions for how to do exactly that without being detected um, in the middle of the night. But of course, what's uh, interesting there is that uh, he's saying the words, you know, I'm not saying do anything illegal. Smith was sentenced to two and a half years in federal prison, but the horror didn't end there. In the most unfortunate type of mistaken identity, another neo-Nazi group repeated the same bungled attempts at terror. This time it was the base. Harper had reported about this group on his own show, which brings us back to Tristan's story in Michigan. Right. They were much more sort of operationally focused. And my work is almost entirely on kind of the propaganda wing of these guys. You've reported a lot on militias. How does the base fit into the patterns you've seen with these groups? Well, the base is arguably sort of a training a package for this race war concept. But there is also a tension between groups like the base and the kind of more mainstream militia groups um, that the base exploits because what they want to do is to find the kind of furthest right, the, the people dissatisfied with the standard militia rhetoric, and then they want to radicalize them into this kind of more extremist, um, overt race war ideology. Let me see, um, yeah, so let me, and I put a timestamp in this one too, so hold on, I'll share screen. Megan Squire has a PhD in computer science. She uses data science and technology to study online extremism. We're noticing hate groups and other 
right-wing extremist groups decentralizing and moving to online platforms. As the world uses technology, these groups do also. And so um, I, as a software engineer, am able to write code and analyze data to try to understand that phenomenon and just the whole idea of them moving to new platforms and new places online. Where does the base fit in? So they are representative of ideological shift, I guess, or a, you know, a system of beliefs and activities that's a little bit different than what we've seen before. Sometimes that strain of things is called accelerationism. In terms of their capacity for violence, they were probably pretty high, but at the same time, they were very small and um, to, as it turns out, fairly easily disrupted, I guess. So this is a screen cap from a different base channel. On December 11th, 2019, two Michigan base members took photos of themselves with flashing bulbs on the front porch of the home they believed belonged to Daniel Harper. And then they marked it with their propaganda. So not only is the guy wearing the to Totemkoff t-shirt and the base symbol on his plate carrier and the skull mask, and he's blacked his eyes out, and he's got a hat, I mean, the whole thing. But then they also put their base logo on top of the picture, just to kind of drive home the point of who's, in, who's doing this terror. It's, it's definitely propaganda and, and directed at their own affiliates. Again, it was the wrong house and the same innocent family. And uh, they pointed to the number of the address and then like took photos of themselves. The worst part is it happened again and again and again. There were threats on social media, videos, and a letter. The family living there called law enforcement for help. The idea is to sow increasing discord within society, to increase the tensions in society, to make people more scared and more apt to uh, reach for guns and be more apt to turn on their neighbors. And, uh, you know, like that's their, that's their explicit stated political goal. The Washtenaw County Sheriff's Office saw those images and described them as non-threatening photographs and statements and closed the case. What they see is, you know, it's just a couple of kids. It's just trespassing. Like, they didn't take it seriously at all. And then the FBI shows up. Right. On that same December night in 2019, when two base members were on the porch terrorizing an innocent family, the newest base recruit, Tristan, was explaining his personal beliefs on his vetting call. Tristan says he was recruited by a man with the alias AK. His real name is Justin Watkins. Do you find this programming valuable? You can support this project right now, along with the important efforts of the Southern Poverty Law Center a nonprofit organization that works to dismantle white nationalism and bolster our inclusive democracy. Simply visit splcenter.org and click the donate button 
There you'll find all the quick and easy ways to support the production of this content and join in SPLC's movement for a more just and equitable society. On Tristan's vetting call, he explained Justin Watkins had recruited him to join the Michigan cell of the base. Justin told me about the base. He's a 24-year-old member of the base and Aryan Resistance, the local neo-Nazi group Tristan started. He was more of a, uh, you know, a leader, a go-getter, more of a high-energy person, you know, a very a good motivator. Around this time, Tristan was suspended for three days from high school. Then he moved again with his brother and mother to a 3.5-acre family farm in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. It's a small two-story, three-bedroom white house with beige siding. Membership in the base would connect him to a larger network of like-minded racist people. My dad was raised in the house. My grandpa lived in the house and died there. So I just, you know, what I wanted to do was just give um, other whites, you know, white guys and whatever, to um, an opportunity to live among other whites and be able to actually have families just separate and get away from this society because, you know, a lot of guys that I was talking to were just depressed. Tristan invited Justin and two other men to rent rooms. At one point, a 17-year-old male runaway from Idaho moved in for a few months. When Tristan's grandmother, Carol Teagarden, visited, she knew nothing good was happening in the web house. She worried about Tristan's father's hunting rifles and other guns she saw laying around instead of being locked away. She says an FBI agent asked her to look for clues and find out more about the men living in the house. He said, see if there are two-way cameras on the exterior of the house. He said, see if there's any additional paraphernalia around. There was. There was a whole garage with all that stuff covered. Tea Garden says she couldn't believe what she saw. Huge swastikas, flags. She says the FBI agent told her to look for a manifesto, but says on her next visit, one of the young men living in the house followed her every step. So what I did is just call him back and I said, there are guns that are loose, there's no manifesto, there's a gun in a drawer, there's cameras. My name's Pete Simi. I'm a professor of sociology at Chapman University in Southern California. Pete Simi is an expert on extremism, the author of American Swastika. He's also an associate professor of sociology at Chapman University. Simi is known for embedding himself in the lives of neo-Nazis and skinheads to study the white power movement. His research demonstrates not all kids and adolescents exposed to racism and hate propaganda or who have tough upbringings become violent extremists. But violent extremists frequently have those experiences. 
For the past 25 years, I've been studying political extremism with a focus on right-wing extremism, white supremacist movements, and anti-government extremists. Your research shows there's no single set of circumstances that attract people to white supremacy groups, but rather it's the result of maybe a combination of push and pull factors. What are those factors? The push factors, we're talking about family adversities, family instabilities, certain kinds of environmental conditions that we know have negative consequences on a child's development physical abuse, sexual abuse, uh, parental neglect, other types of instabilities within the family. That's one type of kind of push factor. Children being raised by families uh, who are themselves involved in these groups. What's actually more common than that, though, is everyday types of racism that's being uh, kind of taught in, in the family. Maybe a parent's telling racist jokes or using kind of racial slurs, racist slurs offhandedly. They're, they're not themselves involved in any type of, you know, extremist or white supremacist group, but they are espousing ideas that in many respects are consistent. On the poll side, we see that the propaganda, whether we're talking about kind of disparate ideas that exist out there in cyberspace or whether we're talking about groups offline. Radicalization can happen in all types of families, regardless of social class, education, or life opportunities. There's a certain kind of allure, a, an attraction that these ideas and groups represent which is that you're going to be part of something special. We just passed the high school, and now we're passing the middle school. And both of them have a picture of a broken axe. So I guess we're in bad axe. My name is Mimi Harrington, and I'm the director at the Bad Axe Area District Library, and I've been in this position for the last 17 years. Bad Axe is 94% white and generally a quiet place. Most people work at the hospital or farm. This area is called the thumb because Michigan looks like a mitten. Like most places, there's a story behind its name. We heard the actual infamous Bad Axe was on display at the library, so we took a detour to see it. This man, Rudolph Papps, and another man were surveying the Thumb of Michigan, and they found a very old, rusty hatchet um, in the crotch of a tree or somewhere, and so they, they called it Bad Axe Camp because it was a bad axe. And it, the, the name stuck. Inside a secure glass case, there's a metal head of an axe in the crook of a tree. Harrington says most folks don't believe it's the original axe. It doesn't look like the axe that really was the bad axe that they found here. Why is that being preserved if it's not the right axe? I'm really not sure why that axe is being preserved, to tell you the truth. In 2020, the number of active hate groups operating in the U.S. fell from 940 to 838. But this decrease doesn't necessarily represent a drop in hate. Cassie Miller has a PhD in American history and is a senior research analyst at the Southern Poverty Law Center. 
what we've seen is a shift in the organizational style that the movement is using. Um, they're shifting away from formalized groups uh, and towards a more diffuse organizational structure. They've moved towards a more leaderless resistance model where they're part of either a diffuse structure or really small clandestine cells that are much harder to track. Um, and this shift has also really been facilitated by changes in the tech landscape. They've seen over the past several years how groups have repeatedly and, and often very successfully been infiltrated by law enforcement, anti-fascist journalists. Michigan's attorney general has officially brought charges against the self-proclaimed leader of a white supremacy group called The Base. 25-year-old Justin Watkins and 35-year-old Alfred Gorman attempted to target the home of a podcaster in 2019 who was critical of neo-Nazis. Before the sun was up on October 28, 2020, the FBI pulled up with a caravan of cars to raid the Webb family farm, now the Michigan cell of the violent accelerationist group The Base. Justin Watkins, 25, the local leader, was arrested and a search warrant was served. Alfred Gorman, 35, another base member, was arrested at a separate location. They were both picked up for allegedly terrorizing an innocent family 11 months earlier. The target was supposed to be Daniel Harper, the podcaster. Injured people are rushed to hospital. They were gunned down during Friday prayers at Al-Nur Mosque in the center of Christchurch. They believe the suspect had been looking for a good place to target and shoot Mexicans. A student accused in the latest deadly attack on Jewish Americans allegedly was inspired by other attacks on Jews and Muslims. The FBI kind of stepped up in a big way after um, the mass shooting started, particularly after Christchurch, the Poe shooting, um, the El Paso shooting, that the FBI started to get really interested in these guys around that time, um, infiltrated the group. So many of the people who were in these telegram channels were undercover federal informants or FBI agents, um, and just started kind of like, it was all kind of a process of rounding these guys up, you know, in, in kind of a, a larger operation. Justin Watkins and Alfred Gorman were charged with felony counts of gang membership, unlawful posting of a message, and using computers to commit a crime. I don't know, don't you, see, don't you see a, or feel a sense of peace when you get to the country? Just less stress. They've done studies. Eric Webb hadn't been back to his family farm in four months. He agreed to show us around. It's 12 days since the FBI raided this home where you grew up. How does it just feel to be back and know all that just shook down here? Well, my dad wouldn't be happy with that. This is the barn my great-great, possibly great-great-great-grandparents built for my great-great-grandfather who had this farm. The FBI raid on the Webb residence lasted hours as agents scoured the barn, garage, every drawer and crawl space looking for clues to what this white power group was planning. Hydrogen peroxide, okay. What do you think that's for? Uh, yeah, why is that weird? Uh, that's weird. I don't know what that is. I'm throwing this in the 
What is this? Back in here, I guess they had the chickens. First, we surveyed the area outside the house. It was littered with beer bottles, torn bags of trash. At some point, they had farm animals. There were over a dozen empty feed bags and a pen for hogs and chickens. So in the tool shed, there's like... Their Nazi paraphernalia had been confiscated by the FBI, but we found a disturbing pamphlet with racist caricatures published in 2020, posted on the wall of a tool shed. I would take it this for is your 2020 records. propaganda. Yeah, take it for your records. And it's all about black people. It's using the N-word. That reminds me of stuff from Hitler. This is from Hitler's times. This yeah, is the way they a, talk. That's the way they drew their caricatures. In the garage, Eric Webb found old photos of Tristan on the ground. This is... That is Tristan. That would have been him when he was three. Did you think your little boy would turn into a neo-Nazi? Still trying to be programmed on that. To unleash the full power of the federal government in this effort today, I am officially declaring a national emergency. Tristan remembers feeling frustration with the COVID-19 government-mandated restrictions when the global pandemic hit America. During the COVID um, period when Trump declared the uh, national emergency, we thought something was going to happen then. And uh, more of... And we wanted to be together and get more people together in case, uh, you know, any more totalitarian uh, uh, measures came down. When the video of George Floyd's killing sparked a national outpouring on the streets of cities large and small, the town of Bad Axe, population 2,950, reacted too. On June 5, 2020, a crowd of 200 peaceful protesters marched for equal justice and an end to police brutality against black citizens. Base members showed up as counter-protesters. Megan Squire describes images from the scene posted on a Telegram channel. Basically, it's a handful of guys, four or five guys, one holding the camera, the other's in the shot in various forms, and they're wearing um, plate carriers and full guns, multiple guns, magazines, all that jazz, skull masks, which is kind of like almost a cliche at this point of Adam Waffen and the base style groups, but they're wearing those and sunglasses. They were obviously using these as propaganda to just advertise, like, look how badass we are, we're going to show up at this protest and, you know, kind of troll the townspeople and take selfies. They're also covering their eyes. They're wearing masks, but then they used black ink to cover their eyes as well. Well, it's a clandestine movement. They're engaging in, you know, plotting and conspiracy to overthrow governments in some cases to commit racially motivated violence and all kinds of stuff. So they're gonna try to keep their identity secret and the fact that they're working on that together secret. We weren't just gonna let um, outside forces organize in our town without any opposition. We weren't just gonna back down and let 
um, you know, communists and multiculturalists overrun the town. We had gotten a lot of uh, praise and thanks for from a lot of members of the community after that and uh, gained a lot of friends and uh, people in high and low places you wouldn't expect. This town don't need protection. Not like that. He doesn't need to protect anybody. The sheriff's office is here. The, the state police is just down the street. Local business owner and former Marine, Daniel Velasco, has lived in Bad Axe for 30 years. There's a brand name for it. It's called domestic terrorism. But you, you wouldn't think it would be in Bad Axe. But it is. Trying to defuse the situation, the county sheriff, a deputy, and the police chief stood shoulder to shoulder, protecting the armed men from the crowd. Mimi Harrington, the director of the library in Bad Axe, said this scene was a first for this small community. It made me uncomfortable, to be honest. Yeah, I, I don't really see any reason for people to walk around with AK-15s or guns like that. For about an hour, Tristan and two base members stood there gripping their long guns menacingly. I can't believe that is legal. To let my son be in a pressure cooker situation like that with a loaded weapon. Then the three base members started shouting Nazi phrases and raising their arms in Sieg Heil salutes. That's when the Huron County Sheriff asked the armed men to leave. And they complied. Tristan says they were not representing the base that day, though they posted images of themselves on the base's telegram channel immediately following the protest. When Tristan's father saw the story in the newspaper, he was livid about his son and his roommates wielding AR-15s downtown. I imagine there's people in town that are like, apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. A few days later, Webb made the two-hour drive to Bad Axe to collect his guns. I disowned him and I told him to change his name. He's going to ruin my name and you know, that's kind of mean. But And I said, I want the guns. Webb didn't want to enter his own home, so Watkins left the guns in a trash bag outside. When Webb realized his prized Ruger 56 was missing, he threatened to evict all the men. As Webb backed out of the driveway, Watkins lunged at him through an open driver's window of his truck. He had such rage in his eyes, but that turned to fear in that split second because he knew I wasn't stopping. In our next episode of Sounds Like Hate. Yeah, I'm County 911. Uh, yeah, I just called you uh, about drifting, and now the boys that took them came out and attacked me. And Justin was with them. Are you safe right now? down the road about a quarter mile. Okay, I do not want you to go back to that house. Do you understand me? These are complicated stories about people who hold on to false histories and terroristic ideologies and draw boundaries that are skin deep. If you are a parent or caregiver concerned about online radicalization, 
visit SPLC or the Peril Project at American University to obtain your handbook, Building Resilience and Confronting Risk in the COVID-19 Era, or if you or anyone you know has experienced a hate incident or crime, please contact the appropriate local authorities or elected official. You can also document what happened at splcenter.org slash report hate. This is Sounds Like Hate, an independent audio documentary brought to you by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Produced by Until 20 Productions. I'm Jamila Paxima. And I'm Geraldine Moriba. Remember to subscribe to find out when new episodes are released. Please rate and review. It really helps. Thanks for listening.